Hi, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you doing? Oh, better now that we've got beautiful sunshine out and it's like so nice this afternoon. We had a, we had a forced uh, rest, sort of a rest day yesterday with a with a snow day, school out, and everyone kind of stuck at home. Government was closed, right? So, or did you telework yesterday? Um, yes. So. Yesterday, for those listening who don't live in the D.C. area, we were hit with what we would call a major snowstorm. Well, the news called it a major snowstorm, but we were <laughs> laughing because it was like four inches of snow. I, I just have to quickly divert and tell a story. I, when I was four until I was nine, we lived in Colorado. And I was in kindergarten through fourth grade, I think. We never had a cancellation of school. School was never closed. I think we had a delay once. And we moved here to the D.C. area over winter break. And my sister and I were super excited to wake up the morning after winter break and get ready for our first day at school in our new school. So we wake up all excited and my mom comes into my room. I can still remember her coming in and looking at me and saying, school's canceled. You don't have school today. And I said, why? She said, it's supposed to snow. So I ran (laughs) to my window and I looked out the window and there were these little flakes coming down and there was like maybe a little tiny gloss of snow on the grass and there were these kids trying to sled down the hill next to my house. And it was like, welcome to Montgomery County, Maryland. So, yeah. Yeah. So we, we had a major snowstorm and it was, it was a lot of snow. We, and you know, it was, it, it was justified day off from school. But Yesterday. It was just it was yes. Yeah. Well, that is a perfect story to describe where we live. The city and the area surrounding it do shut down when there's any snow. And uh, it was great, though, because this theme for us this week has been recovery. We had a chance to interview this week the author of the book Good to Go, Christy Ashwindon, who was incredible and gave so much good information. And she's coming up next in the podcast. But it was so interesting because we always have known that truly you are only as good as the recovery you give yourself. Right. We tell our runners too, the recovery days are as important as the running. But it's hard for us too. We love doing, we love moving, we love running, we love cross training. And when we have a snowstorm in the DC area, we are forced to just be. And yesterday was great. Sleep in. I, sle- I, I know you got out early for a run yesterday before the snow came, which I thought was a great idea because once it came down, it was yes. covered the roads. But I took advantage of the opportunity to sleep in and it felt so good. So that, and we really, did, I, I don't know, if, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday as I was out shoveling our driveway and we have neighbors across the street that I like to help them. They're a little bit older, some health concerns. So I always good go over for you. and shovel their driveway too. But as I was doing it, I was thinking, I don't feel like this is so much of a rest day, but, but it was, the extra sleep was like so precious to me and key. It made me really feel much better. I, um, like you mentioned, went out early with Felix and Lisa White and we did a run before the snow came, but I got back so early. I went back to bed. It was so so great. And I think I just had Christy's book on my mind and my kids were still sleeping and I I slept another disco nap. I took a disco nap in the morning, and I felt like a million bucks yesterday. And today, maybe it's the placebo th- effect. I don't think so because I was so relaxed yesterday. My uh, speed workout today felt great. Now there was another reason it probably felt great as well is that today weather's so nice now. It's fifty <laughs> degrees. Right. In contrast to our snowstorm yesterday, it's fifty degrees, sunny, and the the sunshine is so bright and welcoming. It almost feels like spring is coming. It does. I, and, even though there's still snow on the ground. And doesn't it help for you? I always run in the dark. So when I have a chance to run in sunlight, it makes such a huge difference, not only in my mood, but just my running is better. Right. Well, you can see where you're going. You're not concerned <laughs> about your footing. But True. No, also, I mean, really the, the temperature. I know last, a couple of weeks ago, we had a couple of days that were like 60, 70 degrees. And I felt free again. You felt so, you really, as much as we talk about in the summertime, heat affects your pace and your effort. The cold does the same thing, the opposite way. The ideal temperature we've found and really I think studies have shown is around 50, 55 degrees. And if it's higher or lower, your body needs to adapt either to keep your core cool or keep your body warm. And, and that extra work, it shows. So when the temperature levels out to a nice a nice temperature like this just feels good. It run. sure does. Yeah. So um, 
when we when we go through the book with Christine X, one of the things that we realized is how important it is to listen to your body. And while again, we always tell our runners this, sometimes it's hard for all of us um, type A runners to listen to our bodies. But I got to tell you, after reading the book, Good to Go, and then um, talking with Christy, I, I really am going to, to be moving forward through the rest of my training, being so much more mindful of what's going on with my body. I have always tried, but now I feel like it's even more important based on all of the studies that she analyzed and all of the great nuggets of information in her book. Yeah. You know what also I took away is a lot less stress about what I should be doing yes. for recovery. You know, um, we've done cryotherapy in the past and I really like it, but it's really expensive. And with some, you know, both of us have big family events. We have our children's bar and bat mitzvahs coming up this year. I've been trying to watch what I spend on myself and I just couldn't justify it. And I was feeling really conflicted. Like I should be doing it, but I can't, um, or, you know, how just, just the stress that trying to get in recovery, specific recovery modalities can cause like, Oh no, do I have time to foam roll today? Should I go get a massage? And do I want to pay for that? And adding stress onto or adding to onto our already long to-do list. And while recovery is super important, what what I've really learned is like you said listen to your body, but also sleep is free mm-hmm. and it's accessible and it just requires really planning and I, I it's made me think about how you know a lot of times we'll say in life, well I don't have time for that and I always think well it's because we don't make time for that. Same thing with sleep. Not that I don't have time for sleep. I'm just prioritizing other things and I need to prioritize sleep, especially now we're getting within, you know, within two months of Boston and our mileage is high. And this is the time really when we have to focus on that. Absolutely. And we did talk with Christy a lot about sleep. So um, for those listening who are struggling with sleep, she gives some really great um, pieces of information. So we want our listeners to have a copy of Christy's book. So we're going to have a contest this week. So today is Thursday, February 21st. And between today, February 21st, and our the release of our next podcast on February 28th, next Thursday, we're going to ask for any of our listeners interested in receiving a copy of Christie's book, if you would please post on your social media, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram that you listen to our podcast and drop us a mention, then when you tag us and mention our podcast, you will automatically be entered to win and we will randomly draw a name from all of the entries and that individual will receive a copy of the book Good to Go. So thanks in advance for participating and spreading the word about this podcast. We are eager to share it because, as we've mentioned before, this is specifically a podcast for those training for the Boston Marathon and other spring marathons, and it will have an end. So we want to make sure people know about it before we close it out um, in about seven weeks. We'll probably close it out with um, a recap of Boston, and we have a lot of material to cover before then, So and don't fear. And, And in fact... We we are open to doing more podcasting, but for this series, we're we're going to close it out. Um, so we'd love to spread the word. Ideas or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear in the next several weeks leading up to Boston or spring marathons or whatever it is that you're training for, let us know. Reach out um, on Facebook, on DM, on Instagram, through email, Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com. We've already gotten some emails and messages from people all across the country who yeah. listen to us and have really great anecdotes and feedback and their own input and their own take on some of the topics that we've discussed. So we love to connect with people. So reach out, connect with us. If you just want to let us know what you think about what we're talking about, or if you've got suggestions for us, for people for us to talk to or topics for us to cover, love to hear that. That's how we, that's how we best serve our runners and, and, and make sure that everyone's getting what they'd like to get out of these podcasts. Absolutely. So uh, before we close out and um, get to Christy, how's your running going this week, Lisa? It's been a little bit of a hodgepodge just because of the weather and because of the school delay today. I've really, you know, I did, I've been 
saying that I kind of try to do my long run, longer long run every other week. So last week was a little bit of a cutback and I plan to do a longer long run this week. But you, but you ran a race though on Sunday. I did. I ran a 5k. That's how I get in my speed work. So and know, how'd that go? It went well. Good. It was, it was long. The, the course was long. My watch measured 3.35, which we so always, unfair. so let's first mention <laughs> that Garmin will never exactly match up with the course. You don't run your tangents, but when you hit 3.1 and you still can't see the finish line, you know, it's long and comparing notes with other runners we all agreed it was a probably about two tenths to three tenths of a mile of a mile long um and it was really hilly so we talk about preparing for boston it was actually much hillier than boston is so it was a challenging course but um but it was it was good and i felt really strong great and uh, got to run with a couple of our teammates from our team and and had a good race so that's that's how i get in my speed work i'm not as good as you i don't i run by myself so when you run i was talking actually um, to Brian Murphy, who's one of our teammates when we were warming up, telling him that because I run by myself, I don't, I'm not really motivated or even able to get in good speed work. If I try to hit my marathon pace miles, it feels super hard by myself. Like maybe I could do it with a group of people, but I really can't. So my, my, um, training runs on my own are more my stress release, my like meditation. I don't listen to music. I don't, I just go and I listen to my body. Like how, how fast can I run today? Not I'm not trying to run fast, but you know, just listening to my body and my effort. And I don't really do tempo miles or go to the track, but I do races to do that. So that I did this past weekend and this weekend coming up is the RRCA uh, club championship for our area. So all of the clubs bring, I, I love this race because it is not a race for age group placement or individual racing. You're actually racing by your team and they score it uh, according to cross-country team guidelines where they have finishers and displacers and the team gets a score and then they award prizes to the team. So it's a really fun, I think we have, uh, I know from our racing team, we have a good number. We have over 300 members of Montgomery County Roadrunners Club coming out. We have a lot of our runners that are coming yep. out as part of that team or other teams as well. And it's just, it's a hard course. And last year, I remember this distinctly because it was rainy and pretty hard raining. And I remembered about mile eight thinking, wow, I'm so glad this is a 10 miler, not a marathon. <laughs> <It was fun. laughs> right. And then we got to Boston and I thought, yeah. oh, remember how I thought it was bad? <laughs> and the, the temperature was rather mild. And I think it's going to be the same. They're, they're forecasting the ending of some showers Sunday morning and a mild temperature. So I think it's going to be the same, but it's, it's a challenging course. Also, it's a hilly course, but the team aspect of it is, is really fun. So that'll be my quote unquote speed work. So I really was sort of struggling with where am I going to get in my long run anyway and then it snowed yesterday and today was a delay in school so I didn't have a big chunk of time today to get in a long run when I normally do on Thursday so I woke up early and did a, a shorter run just a regular short easy run this morning and then I may tack on a few miles before RCA just to make it a little longer and I'll focus on getting in a good quality 20 mile run next week at some point hopefully. That sounds like a great plan and I think given that you're racing two weekends in a row we all be it um, one was just a 5k I think it's really good that you're cutting back a little bit even unintentionally this week so you can really focus on next week's longer distances. Yeah, it's just required you know I had yeah. said in my head I was going to do a long run my long run today and then recover Friday Saturday and just didn't work out so yeah I had to, it happens it's fine it'll it'll be okay Good. so just juggle juggle things around a little bit and yesterday I did uh I had gotten yak tracks and never had a chance to use them and I put them on my shoes yesterday just to try them out for a little jaunt around the neighborhood they're great and I actually got the yak tracks walk uh because they didn't have the run at the, at the store that I was at and I thought well I'll just I'll get them anyway to see what they're like and the walk Yak tracks actually work fine to run. Uh, there are specialty run ones that I don't know if, how much different they are, but they worked fine. I, I didn't do anything fast or long or anything, but just did a little jaunt, and it was really fun to be out in the snow and, and felt secure on my footing, so that was cool. Were you sore at all from that because you were using different muscles? No, I was sore from shoveling. <laughs> That's why I woke up this morning like, oh, my arms are made Why is that? So I was sore. that, And again, even though I felt like yesterday was kind of a low-key rest day, that shoveling was was still some good uh, strength training. Yeah, definitely. So I, I similarly had a hodgepodge of a week, um, balancing a lot of different things this week. And um, this weekend, I don't have, I'm not going to be able to do RCA, sadly, because I have kid commitments right. on Sunday morning. And um, I just, I just don't um, generally love skipping club races because it's really fun and I'm sad about it. However, um, as a result, I've, 
kind of got to figure out something to do for Saturday for my long run, and I'll figure it out. I haven't yet because my intention, like you, was to try and squeeze it in this morning, um, but again, it didn't work out with the weather. So for me, I usually do my longer tempo run on Thursdays if I don't do my long run that day with the... Um, MT group, um, and that wasn't meeting today, obviously, because the snow was melting and um, there probably was some black ice this morning. So I waited until I had a, a break in the work I was doing and over my lunch while I was teleworking, which is so nice, I went out and did um, some speed work and I did 200s today, which I don't normally do. And it felt really nice because again, it was so nice. When out. you do 200s now, do you do them on your watch because you're not at a track? Are you doing, how are you doing it? Um, well, generally when I do 200s, it's either I'm on a treadmill or I, I work out at the park, um, right. in my neighborhood. So you know which point to which point is about so 200. So I do use my watch and I just don't stop it because it's too short of a distance. Right. So it's more about getting turnover yep. for me. And uh, I did my tempo on Tuesday, and that was a, a good workout for me. I did it with Felix, and we ran um, a little bit faster than MP. So I was doing about um, 7.30 to 7.45 around the park. So I wanted to be a tad bit faster, but that's what I had in me. It ended up taking an hour. I, we did eight which is a lot. But what I was really happy about was that we were able to talk during it for the it most part. Good. It didn't felt feel great. Right. Like I was but working. Yeah, but I had the same sentiment that that you just mentioned, which is how am I going to do this for 26.2 miles? I have this every year. I've run so many Race marathons. Magic. Oh my gosh, magic. every you know year. That's but um, I will say that I was pretty wiped after that workout, but I felt like such a badass. So um, I love and hate tempo runs for that reason. I feel very accomplished after them. I dread them beforehand. So I feel about races. Yeah, races too. Races <laughs> always. Races. Yeah. You know, I dread them, but I feel yeah. good afterwards. And I always wonder going into them, how am I going to be able to hold a pace like that? But it's race day magic. A lot of our runners ask that question of, how, why, why am I running my long run slow, slowly? If I run my long run slowly, how am I going to run fast on race day? And they run fast on race day because of, first of all, the sharpening that they're doing on their specific speed work days, but also because their fitness all comes together on race day and they're, they're prepared. It's a, a lot of adrenaline. It's part of it, but really that their fitness has been built up over the training period by building a big base of endurance, sharpening on top of it, running efficiency. But it's hard for people, I think, to grasp the concept of how am I going to run fast on race day if I'm not always running fast when I'm training. Well, there's another key to running fast on race day, and that is getting good sleep the week before race week. Um, now, of course, we always know that the night before a race, you have race jitters yep. and we often don't sleep well the night before a race but if you can carve out time and really get great sleep the week before a big race and keep two weeks before you even yeah. start thinking about it and adding even like a half hour extra going to bed a half hour yeah. early and keeping things as low key and low stress as possible within your control then that also really helps create racing magic that's a very good point the stress and and we'll talk about this a little bit with Christy but when we see this firsthand with ourselves and with our runners when you have stress in your life whether it be your job or family stuff going on or whatever it is it's going on you may think that it's not affecting you and you actually may think that the running is helping relieve that stress but it, it's affecting your body and that's why it is super important those especially those couple of weeks before race day to really figure out how you can minimize the stress in your life and get that extra sleep. And if you don't have control of the stress, which many of us don't, then that's, again, how sleep comes into play because we all know, you know the saying, sleep on it, it'll feel better in the morning. That's because when we're tired, you know, we build more cortisol and, and we're cranky. We're cranky and we react to things that are stressful, but it's just magnified when you don't have enough sleep. So if you can't control the stress in your life, which there are a lot of things we can't control, but the one thing we can really try to is how we build our schedules around sleep. So um, with that, we're going to conclude our chit chat today and we're going to throw it over to Christy and I hope you have a great RRCA and I hope team MCRC does amazing this weekend. I'm excited. Well, we'll miss you, but I'll miss you too. Excited to get in a race on it. <laughs> All right. Course. And don't forget guys to uh, tag us and uh, try and win a copy of Christy's book. Next up is Christy, the author of Good to Go. Bye, Lisa. Bye. 
Christy Ashwanden is an editor and the lead science writer at 538. She is the author of the new book, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Christy is a former health columnist for the Washington Post and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. She's also been a contributing editor for Runner's World and for Bicycling. In addition to being a prolific writer, Christy has also been a lifetime athlete. She has raced in Europe and North America on the team Rossignol Nordic Ski Racing Squad. She's a competitive cyclist and a 1600 state champion. We are so thrilled to welcome Christy to our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. So the first question um, we wanted to ask you before we dig into some of the recovery modalities that you cover in your book is, how do you or how do we as a society quantify recovery? Ooh, that's a really good question. And I actually have a whole chapter in the book called The Magic Metric that is all about this sort of quest to find like the perfect way to measure recovery and to measure, you know, how much you're training and and whether you're tired or not. And it turns out that the very best way to do this is actually through mood, believe it or not. So it turns out that that, uh, athletes who are overtraining get really cranky and they tend to feel kind of depressed and their moods are depressed and, and, you know, they're, they're not feeling as happy as they normally do. So that seems to be one of the best measures. So if you're, you're still feeling kind of cranky, it's probably a sign that you're not recovered. Um, But I guess to back up just a second, at its most basic level, recovery is really like a return to readiness. And it's your body's process of like rebuilding any damage that you did during a workout and and, uh, replenishing your fuel stores, all of these things. And so it's all of the things that happen um, inside your body to make you ready for the next bout of exercise. Right. That makes sense. Well, so here's a question that is sort of an offshoot of that. So a lot of our runners, we're runners ourselves, and a lot of our runners that we coach uh, deal with stress by running. <laughs> That's their stress release. Uh-huh. So, wh- what do you what do you recommend for people who that that's their stress release is is running or or some sort of exercise? What, yeah. what do you what do you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question because you know running is a great stress reliever, and I think you know when you start to feel overtrained or under recovered, um, you can get in a situation where it's no longer working for you to to deal with stress like that, and so that's problematic, right? right? And so one thing that you can do, so uh, I guess I'll just back up a second here and say that runners in particular seem to underappreciate the the role that like psychological stress or of life stress plays in recovery. And so we tend to think of recovery in terms of our workouts. So I did a hard workout, so now I need to recover. And so maybe I take a rest day. But if during that rest day, you're having a lot of stressful things going on at home or at work, or you're running around doing stressful things, like I'm about to get home from this trip and I have to do my taxes. And like, that's going to be a really stressful day, even though I may not even get a chance to go running because I'll be so busy with this. But when that happens, your body is not actually getting full rest. Like to your body, stress is stress, whether it's coming from exercise or it's coming from life stress. And so I think the takeaway here is it's really important to deal with stress and to find ways, um, you know, to, to honor that and to just relax. And so for many of us, running is that thing. And so that can be helpful. But when you get to a point where you're not recovering enough and you're, you're getting tired and running is not then one thing that you can do is find some other alternative and it can even be exercise. Maybe it's just a walk around the block. Maybe it's doing some yoga, but something where um, I think it's really important that 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 stress relieving workout thing that you're doing is being done with sort of the purpose of letting things go, you know, letting your mind wander a little bit, whatever, but versus thinking, okay, now I have to run a specific mileage or I need to go at a certain pace. This is where you're just sort of handing things over to your body, listening to it, um, sort of listening to the pace that feels good or, you know, the distance and all of that, but really tuning into your body's needs. That's great. So this is an example where maybe leaving your watch at home or um, just absolutely, you know, whatever the workout might be, if it may be a a specific workout, just if if getting outside is what your stress release is, is you maybe just leaving your watch at home or a trail run or a trail run, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think you really have to ask yourself, is, is whatever it is that I'm doing becoming its own source of stress? And if the answer is yes, then it's time to revamp and it's time to, you know, that may be taking a few rest days. It may be, you know, throwing the watch away, leaving it home for a while, whatever it is, but you need to make sure that, you know, your mental mindset is one of relaxation and one um, you know, where you're letting go of that stress. And I think it's really important that, that athletes have some sort of ritual on sort of a daily basis for dealing with stress and handling stress. And that may be your run, but you need something else in addition to that where you're actually just sort of totally relaxing. It can be a hot bath. It can be, you know, it can just be like lingering in bed for a few extra minutes in the morning or in the evening, but it's something where you're just sort of, it's almost like it's on your agenda that, okay, this is my relaxation time and I'm going to let go of all the other things that are placing demands on my time and my body. And I'm just going to sort of have some self-care time. I really like that. I liked what you mentioned in your book about how Michael Wardian kind of fell into that when he downloaded the app Headspace. Mm -hmm. Um, a meditation app. And that's become a little bit of his relaxation ritual, especially when he was traveling between his um, races on the seven continents. Yeah, absolutely. And I talked to a lot of athletes actually who are using meditation apps and, you know, you don't even need an app. You can, you can get some nice music. There are a lot of resources available for people who want to learn to meditate, but it's something that can be done in short periods of time um, but it's really about making that a priority. And I think that's where people tend to go wrong. It's like one of those things that you sort of mean to do, but never get around yeah. to. And so um, we loved how you went through the book and reviewed all of the different modalities of recovery. And before we mm-hmm. sort of get into that, we don't want to give everything away because we want people to read your book. Um, there were two things we wanted to touch on as coaches. And you you probably know what one of them is already because um, – we're coaches and we looked at that and and raised our eyebrows and that is, um, nutrition. Um, your, Uh your chapters on nutrition and hydration were fascinating and your chapter on fluids blew us away because so, first of all, you're correct. So much of the science, as you indicate behind hydration is due to funding provided by the very companies that want the science so that they can provide the data and have their products sold to the masses like Gatorade. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple of things you said that we, we just really never thought about. We kind of just believed it. And one is we are always telling our runners a great measure of whether you, you are sufficiently hydrated is, is your urine clear and copious and here. So talk right. to us about hydration, your thoughts and what, what you think we as coaches should be telling our runners different than that. Yeah, that's, that's a great topic. And it's something that I found really fascinating, too, because I had always been told, you know, been shown these pee charts, and your, your pee should be a certain color, and it shouldn't be too dark, and like, really clear pee is good. But it turns out, I mean, I think the best way to think of this is like, imagine that your body is like a bucket where like your fluid level is, you want the bucket to be full, right? And so if you're pouring extra liquid in, then it's coming out. That's, that's your urine, okay? And so there's like a spigot at the bottom, and that's any overflow. And so the, the water coming out of the, of the spigot or the, the overflow, the color of that is going to tell you basically how much more water you have versus you know, the bucket being full. And so if you're just pouring in extra water, the bucket's full, but it's just pouring out. Your, wa- your urine's very, very clear, but your bucket's full. Like you have enough fluids and that's great, but you're basically just sort of making yourself pee a lot. On the other hand, um, you can have a situation where the bucket's full, like you have sufficient fluid levels, um, but you're not, you're not adding in extra. So you're not peeing out a bunch of extra. And so your urine will be pretty dark. Now, yeah, your, your urine shouldn't be like super, super dark <laughs> and, or red or something. If there's blood or something in it, that's bad too. Um, but the concept here is that our bodies are actually really, really good at coping with a little bit of dehydration. And this is something completely contrary to what I had believed going into writing this book, because I'd always heard, you know, drink early and often by the time you're thirsty, it's too late. But it turns out that this is sort of like in violation of basic physiology. And, you know, our bodies are really well adapted to be able 
to cope with like, you know, changing environmental conditions and to be able to go for a while without having, you know, without us drinking water or drinking fluids. And so when you exercise, you know, your body kind of goes into fluid conservation mode a little bit. And so it is true that you're losing fluids through sweat. Um, you're also losing some, some salts through sweat, but our, our bodies can do okay with losing some of this. And it's really interesting. Um, I looked very, very hard while I was researching the book to find a verified case of someone dying in a race or on a sporting field from dehydration. And I could not find a single documented verified case. But what I did find was at least five people who had died from hyponatremia mm-hmm. or water intoxication, which this is a condition, it's basically overhydration. Your blood becomes too dilute and it's really dangerous. You can die, your brain swells. Um, and so we've, we've sort of manufactured this problem. We've taken dehydration, which is, look, people do die of dehydration. It's when they're in the desert and they don't have access to water. Um, but getting a little bit dehydrated isn't, isn't going to kill you. It's not going to hurt you. Um, and in fact, um, the guidelines now for like really long endurance races for ultra marathons and things like this are really saying that you should expect to lose some fluid weight. And if you're not, that that's a sign that you may have overhydrated and that's bad. So we're able to cope with a little bit of fluid loss. You need to drink when you're thirsty, but it turns out thirst is like a really great indicator and it's a really good thing to go on. And so it just isn't necessary to drink beyond thirst. And while it may be smart to think about hydration and sort of plan for it, because, you know, if you're running, I know that if I'm running on a hot day and I'm going, you know, over an hour, say, I know that I'm going to get thirsty, I'm going to need water. So like planning to have access to it. And if I'm in a situation where I'm in a race or something like that, making sure that, you know, if there's aid stations only at certain places that I'm thinking about it. But I think the key here is to just pay attention to it and really know that it's something that, you know, you're probably going to feel thirsty and making sure that you have access to water versus making yourself drink when you don't feel thirsty. And I think we've all had the situation where, you know, it's like a really hot day or something and, and you get dehydrated and you get that glass of water and it just tastes so good. And then there are other times when you feel like, well, I should be drinking. And so you're drinking water and it doesn't really taste that good. And it's kind of sloshing around in your stomach. And then you're trying to run and it feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happening here is your body's sort of giving you signals. And so it's actually absolutely true that water tastes better when you're really thirsty. There's these receptors in your throat that um, affect this. And so water doesn't taste as good when you don't, when your body isn't needing it and you're already sufficiently hydrated. So thirst is just a really good thing to pay attention to rather than pee charts or, you know, fluid drinking charts. And in fact, you probably remember in the, the chapter on hydration, I tell this story about the military having trouble because um, in one of the wars in the Middle East, they were, they had this schedule where everyone was supposed to drink a certain amount every hour. And the, the soldiers were doing that and they were getting all these cases of hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. People were having to be evacuated because they were drinking too much water. Yeah. So it's really, it's really dangerous. It can be, it can be very dangerous to drink to a schedule um, instead of thirst, particularly if you are drinking when you wouldn't, you know, otherwise think about doing it or feel like doing yeah, it's it. interesting that uh boston marathon i know which is you know what most a lot of our runners are preparing for not everyone but uh, actually yeah. now issues a warning a hypertrophia warning for for the runners where you know in, in addition to the uh, weather weather uh, alerts um, but also that type of warning yeah. for runners who it seems to be like you said we've kind of manufactured this issue now now you didn't find obviously any luckily any deaths from from dehydration but what about performance effects on performance right right and there again it's interesting because what happens is you can do these studies in the lab and they can seem really interesting so I talk in the book about a a study that was actually done with Ambie Burfoot who's a pretty um, well-known runner he he won the Boston Marathon I think in 68 or so Anyway, but he was part of one of the first studies on hydration that was done on this. Yeah, and I love, they were, I they love did... that when you mentioned he had never used a treadmill before. It is part of the study. Right. He learned to use a treadmill <laughs> for the first time because they weren't around then. Right, right. So first time on the treadmill, he's learning how to do that. And so there were different conditions, one of, one of which being where he had to drink like what felt to him like very often. I don't recall now, it's in the book, but like how often it was. And he just felt, you know, it felt terrible. He felt like this water was sloshing around. He said something like, I have the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. in my stomach. And 
he didn't feel well, but they're taking measures like of his body temperature and some other things. And they're saying, oh yeah, it's really good. You know, the more he drinks, it's better because we can, you know, find these things. So for instance, one thing um, is that if, if you drink more water uh, while running, it can uh, prevent your body temperature from going up a tiny bit. But what happens is if you, if you don't drink as much, your body temperature will rise, but then it seems to sort of plateau a little bit. Mm. Um, so our, our bodies are actually adapted to do this, um, to, to have some fluid loss. Your, your kidneys can conserve water. And so, you know, it's, you're, you're not going to wither and die. Um, but it turns out that, you know, you can per- perform pretty well without having a lot of extra water as well. And so Ambi didn't, didn't like the feeling of having all this extra water. And then shortly after this um, study, which was showing, you know, by the measures in the lab, which again, that's not, that's not the condition that we care about, which is like in the Boston Marathon, let's say. And so then he went and won the Boston right. Marathon without drinking yeah. anything, which, you know, and back in those days, no one drank. And I do think it's better to drink. Like I'm not, I'm not at all telling people not to drink, but I think that just the performance benefits of drinking um, extra water, you know, particularly beyond thirst. And I, I want to be really clear, you know, drinking water beyond thirst just aren't, established. And I think it's also easy to sort of conflate. So one thing that is true is if you're doing a long race, like a marathon, it can be helpful to get some carbohydrate into you while you're doing that. And so if you are taking in a liquid that has um, some calories in it, that may be helpful, but it's it's probably not the fluid. It's, it's the calories. Like beer, beer instead of water. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. Which, um, we will we can touch on this now that you brought up beer the beer I love the very first chapter is a study on on the effects of beer and we will we will ask people to read the book and find out what those results were but yeah. they're very interesting regarding beer they were they um, were so I like what yeah. you said though and I think um as coaches our thoughts are when you're running a marathon you need to plan so while certainly you should drink to thirst mm-hmm. if you're thirsty and the water stop isn't for another two miles then you may need yeah. to have a little bit, even if you're not super thirsty, knowing that. So looking at where the water stops are in right. race and planning ahead is not drinking um, too much necessarily, but also or being arbitrarily, mon- arbitrarily yeah. rather. But Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, and I think that's really great planning. And so, you know, there are scenarios like that where you may be not, you know, really, really thirsty, but you may want to drink and that's fine. And I think the scenario that you really want to avoid, though, is where you feel like you don't really feel like like drinking and you're making yourself do it because you think that you need to. And the people who have died from from overhydration, you know, they had drank in those sorts of scenarios where it's like, okay, I'm at this mile marker. I need to drink. I may not feel like it at all, but I'm just going to force myself. So if if it doesn't feel pleasant, if you just sort of, if it feels like something you're really pushing on yourself, that's probably a sign that you don't need it. Another really interesting thing that I found out though, is that it's actually, um, I want to be really careful the way that I say this, because I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm like encouraging people to like get used to being dehydrated, but it's actually better to be slightly dehydrated than overhydrated. And it turns out that, um, you know, we have this advice that's often given before a big event to like be sure to hydrate the night before and the day before and sort of top the ideas you're kind of topping off your fluids. But it turns out that you should actually do sort of the opposite where you're just like continuing to drink the thirst beforehand and giving your body like a little bit of practice almost of conserving fluids, because then you're going to be much better adapted during the event. Um, particularly like, let's say you miss a water stop or something that you were planning on, um, your body will be much better able to cope with it because there are these little receptors in your kidney that can go in and uh, conserve water and reabsorb water if it needs to, if you're losing fluids and not taking anything in and you will have more of these. So like if, if you aren't like overhydrating or, or super hydrating on a f- regular basis, you sort of don't have as many of these around because it's like, oh, we don't really need these. But if you are sort of regularly, um, you know, practicing uh, not overhydrating, then you will have more of those. So you're sort of better able to cope with a little bit of dehydration. That is very too. interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the next thing we wanted to touch on was another really compelling but obvious part of your book because it's something we preach. So go ahead, Lisa. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I was just <laughs> taught, telling Julie before we um, got on with you that this has always been our gut. I've always had my best races. Usually it's the week after we get back from vacation at the beach where I've slept until I woke up in the morning. I didn't set an alarm and I got a lot of really good quality sleep. And I always have my best races when I get back from those vacations or when I've had just good sleep. And 
uh, and and we've always told our runners and we tell ourselves that it's so important. It's very hard for, especially our, um, you know, we're both moms of young kids. We've, yeah. worked, we've got a lot of stuff going on. The people we coach are busy people who are waking up at four 30 in the morning to get their runs in. And, you know, we tell them try to take a nap, yeah. nap and they, they kind of uh, laugh, <laughs> laugh at us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and we also have a lot of runners and this happens with ourselves sometimes too, uh, that can't sleep well at night. They, they say, well, I'm waking up at two mm-hmm. in the morning. And I don't fall back to sleep for a couple hours. And then I'm stressed because I'm not getting the sleep I know I need. Yeah. So, so tell us a little, talk a little bit more about the importance of sleep and uh, how to get that good sleep. Maybe some little sure. tricks that we can take. And, um, and if, you know, choosing between and waking up early to run and sleep, what, which, which should we choose? <laughs> That, that's a really good question. And I would say, you know, it's obviously context dependent because if every time you're feeling tired, you don't get up and do your run, you know, then uh, pretty soon you're not sleeping. But I would say in general, sleep is more important because without the sleep, you can't recover and you can't benefit. I mean, I think, I think the, the bottom line here is that you just have to prioritize sleep. And I was at an event uh, last night and one of the audience members asked, okay, so if you can't do sleep, what, what's the next most? And I said, no, 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 wait, no, you, you have to do sleep. Like you can't, this just isn't, I mean, it is really of equal importance to your training. It really is. It's that important. And I think that the mistake that so many people make is that they don't prioritize it and they say, well, I just don't have time or they, they sort of allow it to become the thing that is where you give because we all have really busy lives and particularly if you have young kids or you're running and you have a, a busy job and, and busy home life, it can be hard to, to fit everything into the day, but sleep just can't be the thing that's cut. And this isn't just about running too. It's about your cognitive performance, your ability to, you know, do your job and be a good parent and everything else. Um, you know, one of the uh, symptoms of not getting enough sleep too, right, is like crankiness and all that. And oh, yeah. none of us want, want to do that. So I think, you know, step number one is that you really do have to prioritize it and schedule it into your day, like make that eight hours or, you know, however much you need. And I think that seven hours is like the absolute minimum. It is a little bit individual, but you know, there's a lot of people and I met a lot of them while I was reporting this book who say, oh, I do fine on six hours. Well, most people really don't. And what really ends up happening is the people who say that have just become really good at sort of adapting to being uh, you know, chronically sleep deprived. And so they're still really impaired. They're just finding these crutches around it, but they're not, I mean, this is stuff that doesn't just affect your running, it affects your health. It affects, you know, all kinds of other things in your life. Um, another really interesting thing is that people who are sleep deprived after a little while very quickly uh, lose their ability to notice their impairments. So they think that they're doing just fine, but they're not. And so you, you've like done studies. Addict. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a, a functioning alcoholic. Exactly. And so they, they think everything's fine, but it's not. And, you know, when they're given cognitive tests and things that are really looking at, um, you know, how they're actually coping, they perform terribly, but they just, they've sort of lost the ability to even notice, which is scary yeah. right? because you think you're okay, but you're not. Sure. And these people are on the roads. All of us are sleep right. deprived and we're driving right. as functioning right. addicts. <laughs> not good. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, I just want to add one more thing here. And that is that s- sleep is another thing that's really important for like staying healthy mm-hmm. as well. So like when you're sleep deprived, you're much, 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 much more, um, susceptible to colds and other like bugs and things like that. Um, you just get run down. Um, there are studies that show that, you know, your injury rates could even go up. So really like, it's just sort of the foundation of, of good health, but also of training. And what do you say to those runners or any, anyone who would say, well, I'll catch up on my sleep on the weekend. I'll, I'll you know, get 10 hours a night for two nights and then I'm going to skimp for the rest of the week. Are you looking at a regular basis? I mean, is it possible to make up on the weekend or is that not advisable? So the experts I talk to really advise against that in part because it doesn't, it, you, it's really hard to just catch up in a day. I mean, unless you can like literally sleep all day or something, but even then, you know, our bodies um, just don't do well with trying to play catch up. And you really, I mean, fundamentally here, you want to have a sleep wake schedule that is regular so that your body sort of gets on a clock that will also help with being able to get to sleep and stay to sleep. So one, one thing that's common with people who have trouble sleeping is that they're not going to bed at a regular time or they're not getting up at a regular time. And so 
there's that, um, the anxiety about, about sleeping can also sort of feed on itself. So just doing some things, you know, proper sleep hygiene, making sure the room is dark, it's quiet. Um, you're going to bed at a regular time, getting up at a regular time. You're comfortable, not too hot, not too cold. All of these things can sort of add up to, to helping you. But it isn't something where you can just, um, you know, regularly be skimping on it. Now, at the same time, I think it's interesting to point out, um, it's sort of common, like, let's say you're going to a big race. It's not unusual that you don't sleep ideally the night before. And in this case, what you really want to be sure is that you've sort of been sleeping well all week. And so like one night of bad sleep isn't going to ruin you. You know, I'm talking here of like getting six and a half hours or something. I'm not talking about a night of three hours yeah. of sleep <laughs> or something. Um, but you can do okay. So it is it is like over the overall amount of sleep you're getting is really important. And you should focus on that. But it's just a bad strategy to think, okay, I'm going to sleep six hours a night, you know, four days a week, and then a few of the other nights get more sleep. That just isn't a good strategy and it'll catch up with you. Well, we just love that that is really your number one modality for recovery is sleep because it's free and it is, the remaining yeah. modalities for the most part that you review are not. And while we certainly um, don't want to touch on every single one, we just don't have the time today. There were a couple that um, we wanted to touch on with you. And first of all, just for those who haven't read the book yet, um, Christy goes through and actually becomes a guinea pig and tries all these different modalities ranging from cryotherapy to infrared sauna, uh, uh, foam rolling and a float tank, which I loved. I love that description. Yeah. But um, there was one that really also, um, it kind of confirmed what we've been feeling for a couple of years based on the fact that we work with a doctor who has really become anti ice. And that is, mm -hmm. um, your description of ice. And would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I have a whole chapter in the book about this. It's, it's that important. Um, we've really, for a very long time, thought that ice was a great thing to do to muscles, to do to, to injuries. And the idea here was sort of twofold. One is there is this idea that it could reduce soreness. And then the second is that it would reduce inflammation and that would help you heal better. And it turns out that both of those are incorrect. So it is true that ice can reduce inflammation some, but it turns out that inflammation is your friend. So if you're training in hopes of getting fitter and faster, um, those hard workouts that you're doing are creating little bits of damage to your muscles. And what happens is your muscles, after you get that damage during the recovery process, your, your muscles are healing themselves. And the inflammation process is a really important part of this. It's how um, you know, these inflammatory uh, agents go in there, they rebuild the, that damaged tissue. Um, and when you take that away, you just don't make the same sorts of improvements. You don't get the same gains in strength. There's a really interesting study I talk about in the book where they put people on training programs and, and then this was like hard uh, weight training programs. Um, and then they would ice one limb, but not the other. And the limb that was iced, like made fewer strength gains and like had less um, protein buildup and, and all kinds of things. So, I mean, there's some tangible evidence that icing just impairs or impedes your, your ability to adapt to exercise and to get a training benefit. Um, but it also turns out that there's no good evidence that it helps with soreness either. Um, I've always had this personal, uh, this is completely without evidence, but my little, my little secret theory is that uh, icing, you know, if you've ever iced, it hurts like uh -huh. hell at first. And then eventually you get numb. Right. right. And I think, you know, I've always sort of thought the, the way that it works is it just hurts so much that by the time that hurt goes away, you're like, Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess we all have permission to stop those hellish ice baths that we've been doing. Yes. But we, we both had, done um, for a couple of years, cryotherapy. And I liked what you said about that, which is, you know, if it works for you, great. There's not proven evidence of it, but you felt like, and what did you say, an MMA fighter when you left a cryotherapy yeah. tank? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got out of there feeling like I wanted to go kick some butt. It really <laughs> is, a, is a huge adrenaline rush. And so, you know, I can definitely see the appeal of that. Um, I don't think that it's something worth spending a bunch of money on. I mean, I wouldn't like if someone really feels like it's great for them, I'm not going to, you know, try and talk them out of it, but there just isn't really good evidence that it's, it's in terms of recovery, that it's helpful. Yeah. That's helpful for us too. Cause now we're going to save some money. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and so another um, modality that you talked about um, is massage. And that one also mm-hmm. really rocked our world. Can you just talk briefly about your findings with that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, because everyone loves massage, right? And we, we sort of think, okay, it really helps with soreness and it must be flushing out like these byproducts of, you know, the metabolic process and all the stuff that's happening when we're exercising. And there's actually not like really strong evidence for any of that. At the same time, it feels really good. And so I sort of use this as, as an example of something that you know, there are all sorts of scientific explanations that are used to explain why massage is great and why people love it for recovery and why it's helpful for recovery. And I do actually think that it is helpful for recovery. But those scientific explanations probably aren't the correct ones. Um, when you're getting a massage, you're like sacked out on the table, you're not looking at your phone, you're relaxing your body. Um, another really important thing that I think massage can deliver is this body awareness. So you're kind of checking in on your body and like how every part of it is feeling and where you're sore and where you have knots and things like that. And I think that's a really important thing for an athlete to, to you know, get on top of and to understand and feel. And in the book, I really make the argument that the most important skill that any athlete can develop is a sense of their own body's cues and their own body's signals and the ability to read their own body and what it's telling them. Absolutely. And I think massage can be part of this. Yeah. yeah. So combining body awareness with heat, if you are feeling um, like mm-hmm. you need circulation to the area, but recognizing that numbing the area is not the best idea anymore. And I, I, I appreciate right. We appreciate that you looked into that further. Um, we could talk to you forever, but we know we need to wrap it up. But we just, we just wanted to ask you one more question to wrap it up. And that is, what do you tell the runners out there who just find any sort of rest or recovery difficult, where it makes their skin crawl to actually have to rest? What do you tell them? Yeah. Um, well, I tell them that you, you can decide to rest and you can prioritize it or your body will force you to. And what I mean by that is eventually if, if you don't uh, prioritize recovery enough, eventually, and it will be sooner rather than later, you will get sick or you will get injured and your body will sort of force you to take a time out. So you can be the one deciding to do this and sort of taking care of it, or you can let your body like force the issue. And it's always more pleasant to be the one deciding, right? We love that. We always tell our runners to try and get a PR in recovery and you. Oh, I love that. You definitely support that. And Uh, We are just so grateful that you took the time to speak to us. Can you tell our listeners how we can find out more about you and about your upcoming podcast? Oh, sure. Yeah, I have a podcast that's coming out in about a week, I hope. It's called Emerging Form, and it is a a podcast about the creative process. My co-host is a poet, and we talk about all things creativity. And it's sort of like, it's not just about, we're both writers, so, but we're not just talking about writing. We're talking about all sort of creative endeavors. Um, so that's a fun thing. And then people can find out, and to find out about it, um, emergingform.com is where the episodes will, will be found. Um, and I also have a page about the, the podcast on my website, which is my name, Um, Maybe you can put that in the you show notes. Will. But you can, um, and you can also, it's also linked. So the book has its own webpage. And it's very easy. It's www.goodtogobook.com. And at that website, you can find uh, where you can order it from all kinds of booksellers, whatever, um, all the usual suspects. Also, some more information about the book, a link to my website, and also my book tour schedule. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast is is going out, but I'm still, I'm I'm just finishing up my East Coast leg. Um, and then I'm going to be on the West Coast. So a bunch of stops still to come. Wonderful. Well, we are so grateful again. And thank you so much for um, writing this book for all of us. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Christine. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. Really fun. Take care. All right. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.